I want to just say uh, thanks again, Catherine. Catherine Cole for joining me. I, and I want to, Catherine is an author, a, a writer, a podcast host, a member of the trade. And, and I wanted to start by with the first question, which is the most important one, which is like, what are you drinking? <laughs> well, first of all, I want to say hi, everybody. Um, hi, Noel, Amelia, Donna. Nice to see you. I can see your names. I love that. Oh, you've got my book. Yay. Thank you so much. Um, and I opened my little chat so I'll keep an eye out if anyone has questions. Um, I am drinking, the sad thing I have to say about writing books is you write them like three years before they are published. <laughs> so I'm really sad because now is a really exciting time for sparkling wine in Oregon. And we have all these new producers coming out. Um, so this is one of them, Land Mass. It's probably hard to see, they have a beautiful label. And you can so look at Catherine's, I'll post her social handle. You can go look at her okay. Instagram if you're curious. So this is a pet nat, a petillon natural. I probably said that totally wrong. Um, but it's extended tirage. So this has aged. This is a 2013 pet nat, which we're immediately launching into super wine geek talk. But I have never tasted, I don't think, a seven-year-old extended tirage pet nat. And um, this is a style that's typically very fresh, very young. Um, you can see it's cloudy. They, they just let, I think they just let the leaves sit in the bottle, um, which is typical for a pet nap, but it's been sitting on those leaves for seven years. Um, so the aromatics are just super interesting. I'm getting like, it's like molasses or maple syrup, but without the sweetness, if that makes sense, which, but anyway. This is like my daily test. Do I have COVID? I can still smell <laughs> I can still smell fine. Okay, I'm fine. Because <laughs> yeah. do, do we all do that every morning? You wake up and you're like, oh, I can't taste my coffee. Well, that's not a problem for me. I don't know. Some mornings, I think it's like my allergies or something. It takes a while for my palate to wake up. And I'm like, oh, I can smell wine now. <laughs> I'm usually awake for an unfortunate amount of time before I get to my first cup of coffee because I'm usually up with my son. And uh, and so by the time I, I get to the first cup of coffee, I'm like so ready for it. But yeah, it does not, it does not find an un, like I'm, I'm just, it's, we've not had the issue yet where I'm like, eh, do I have COVID with my coffee? But I also like my coffee pretty dark and strong, so. Yeah, sense. wait, yeah. Zach, I, I need to tell you, I need to tell you something because I know you're dealing with a toddler who won't nap. I just mm -hmm. wanna tell you, my 13-year-old just walked in like five minutes ago and wanted the password for HBO because she wanted to change the parental controls so she can watch NC-17 movies. I'm like, shouldn't you be doing homework right now? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure my complaints will evolve as my son ages. But yeah, it's, it's been a, uh, he's actually been a little bit back on napping in the last couple of days, which is good. It's been a process. He's slowly probably working his way out of it, but as a, someone who's now stuck at home with his child all day, every day. It, it, I wasn't ready for how traumatic a week, a nearly a week of no napping was going to be for me. Cause it's, it's my, my wife is works more than full time. It's like my only time to like do work, but also to not have to be with my son whom I love, but it's like a lot. So anyhow. Brutal. Yeah. So I want to ask you about, about both of your books and I, and I want to start with, um, with the rosé book because that's the one that's actually out <laughs> um and and so uh and noelle has a copy on hand and i assume you do too yes um do, so is the, ah very good 
Um, and so I'm curious, you know, one thing that's interesting to me is, you know, obviously there are uh, innumerable wine books out there and some of them are very focused on specific places or focused on specific styles. So my dog has thoughts. He wants to know why there's not a book about him. Um, and uh, there are also some books that are, I guess for lack of a better word, about the author, right? They're kind of this person's wine journey, journey. opinion. Yeah, something. So when you were first like, you know, was it that, what was it about Rosé as a, as a wine category that made you feel like this is the thing I really want to write a book about? Um, and yeah, I guess let's start there. So um, it's interesting because Rosé all day, I'm sort of going backwards in time. It's a really cute book. It did really well in home decor stores. It did well in anthropology. Um, and then I stupidly did not um, trademark Rosé all day. And this phrase is on every freaking coffee mug, beach towel, whatever. So people think it's funny because since Rosé has come back into style, people think of it as this very sort of just not serious style of wine. They think of it as just something you, you know, you just throw back when you're on the beach. Um, but initially when I wanted to write the book, it was because I was a real Rosé geek and I love really serious rosés that are made like serious white wines and can age um so yeah so i was just into rosé in general and at the time i think it was like 2014 2015 i started working on it there were no books in the english language about rosé there were books about chardonnay there were books about sparkling nothing about rosé and in fact um i'm trying to think i think it was France, well, a lot of countries didn't even count rosé as a category, like when the when they did like the federal, you know, counts of, of wine production. <clears throat> and yet, right around, I think it was 2014, rosé became more popular in France than white wine. So people were drinking more pink wine than white, and that was kind of when France woke up to it. Um, so I could, I could see this trajectory, 2014, 2015, where it was just becoming incredibly popular and there was this opportunity to talk about how it's a really, it can be a very serious wine, a really delicious wine, um, a really precious wine. So that's what inspired me. And I thought, oh great, there are no books in the English language about rosé. I've got this, I own it. And the book was published in April, 2017. There were two other books published in April, 2017 about rosé. Drink, drink, what was the other one? Um. I can't remember. I yeah. think I, I think I purposefully like blocked them both out of my mind. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a wild time to suddenly be like, oh, here are three books about rosé. After, as you said, there being essentially none. Yeah. Um, that is the the I guess the downside of a of a of publishing right. It's a long drawn out process, so you go from idea to to draft but, manuscript. Yeah, but I mean, I feel like we all saw it coming, like Hugh Johnson has his wine guide every year, and I think it was like 2013, 2014. For the first time ever, the wine on the cover was a rosé. So we all we all knew it was coming, the tidal wave. Yeah, and, <laughs> and you know, I'm curious, because, you know, I feel like for me working in restaurants, you know, you really started to see around that time, first the trend of, okay, summer, you know, it's, late spring, summer hits, and everyone's sitting outside. 
what they're drinking is, yeah, instead of white wine, they want rosé. And that was one thing. And then, you know, people started kind of getting to the point where rosé was a big part of their their drinking rotation during the summer. And they said, well, you know, I really like rosé. Maybe I'm going to drink rosé into deep fall. I'm going to start drinking it the first 50 degree day in, in winter or spring. But I'm curious, you know, do you get the sense that, and so, and obviously there are people drinking year round. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, when you probably wrote, when you wrote the book, I think, as you said, you know, your interest was these really serious, you know, uh, kind of, um, yeah, serious rosés. What people were drinking at that time, you know, the, the sort of outdoor sipping rosé wasn't that for the most part, right? It was inexpensive, you know, easy drinking, whatever. Has that, has the, has your sense been that people have kind of caught on to the idea that there is, that, that rosé as a category can be more than that? And, and when they're looking for a year-round rosé, are they looking at these kind of more serious rosés? I think so. And I, I mean, of course, the problem is I live in Portland, which is a super wine geeky town. So <laughs> I live in this bubble. That doesn't sound like a problem. It sounds like a good thing. I know, but I'm like not in touch with what the rest of the world is doing. But I do, it, it does seem to me um, in, even though we aren't even really going to restaurants right now, but it does seem to me that most restaurant wine lists these days, no matter what the season, have a red section, a white section. And even if the rosé section just has a couple wines on it, more and more uh, restaurants are offering that. Um, and, you know, kind of more forward-looking restaurants will have a rosé slash orange section. Mm -hmm. so, so, yeah, I think it is more widely accepted. And, you know, people kind of make fun of rosé as being this, like, you know, sorority girl drink or whatever. And um, I want to tell them, you know what? <laughs> First of all, I think rosé is amazing because it is a wine that pleases all wine drinkers. Red wine drinkers, white wine drinkers, they can find common ground in rosé. So let's stop trashing rosé for being too easy. I don't think it's too easy. I think it's it's like this big tent that we can all get under and appreciate this wine together. It's kind of like my, I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to write the book also is I, I noticed I would always bring rosé to parties and it would be the first thing to go. Everyone wanted to drink the rosé before they got into the white or the red. So I thought, okay, there's something going on here. This is where, this is where everyone kind of gets along. This is a this is a good thing. So. So, so okay. So you you, at what point did you then say, okay, now I'm writing a book about sparkling wine? <laughs> um, I had originally pitched my publisher on a prosecco book, because at the time it was, Prosecco was growing like wildfire the way Rosé was and people didn't really know that there were fine Proseccos out there. Um, but it was really my publisher, after Rosé all day, I was like, I'm never writing another book because that was my fourth book. And I was like, all right, I'm done, I'm done, I'm out. <laughs> and then my publisher just kept bugging me. And so they said, um, <clears throat> that Prosecco book you had, idea you had, that was kind of a little too narrow. What about just all sparkling wine? And then it, it made sense because it's like the companion book. I'll hold them up again. They're really cute together. We got the same artist and, you know, it just makes sense to just do a whole category. Yeah. And, um, and so when I was working on Rosé all day, the sales numbers were 
insane. Rosé sales growth was like 65% a year, where all other table wine categories were like 5% a year. It was just nuts. And sparkling wine has been nearly as insane for the last five years. It's kind of been taking Rosé's thunder, so. Yeah, you're, was, you're right on time again. Yeah, I hope I so. There, but, but it's interesting because I think whereas like with, with Rosé, as you said, when you started to write it, there were essentially no Rosé books in English that, that were out there on the market. But sparkling wine, at least in some, I mean, obviously there are innumerable books about champagne, and I'm curious, you know, how did you kind of decide, hey, you know, what am I going to give space to and how am I going to kind of divvy it up? Because also the thing, of course, about sparkling wine, as is true about rosé, but I think it's even more, more so with sparkling, there are so many different uh, areas of production, styles, varieties, you know, uh, all that. How did you kind of say, you know, you obviously didn't write a champagne book or even the Prosecco book that you dreamed of. But but how did you kind of say? Well, here's where I'm gonna here's where I'm gonna not focus, but here are the areas that I feel like I have to touch on. Um, well, the the thing I love about sparkling, just like with rosé, is just about any wine region can make it out of just about any grape. And the other fun thing is there are areas of the world that have traditionally made sparkling wine that we aren't really aware of. Like I found with Italy, both with rosé and sparkling. There's like every village in Italy, you go ask grandpa and grandma what they made in their cellar. They made a rosé and they made a sparkling. <laughs> so they're all, and, and the importers are starting to find these wines. Um, so in Italy, there's this movement, the Rosa Autoctono movement, which is the autochthonous or the indigenous rosés that they're kind of rediscovering. And um, right now the importers are starting to discover these really funky, weird Italian sparkling wines that were just like what, grandma and grandpa, Nona and no, no, no and Nona used to make. Um, so I felt like there were a lot of untold stories. I love champagne. I traveled in champagne for the book. I could talk ad nauseum about champagne, but it's not approachable in terms of pricing. Um, and there's so much else out there. So I just made champagne one chapter and, uh, you know, probably the most kind of dynamic country in the world right now for sparkling wine is Germany. Nobody knows this. It's either the third or the fourth biggest sparkling wine producer in the world. And they consume a ton of sparkling wine. They consume a ton of champagne. They're really into it. They have all these rules and laws about sparkling wine. Nobody over here knows this, but I'm pretty sure the importers are going to start bringing these wines in. So there's, there are a lot of untold stories all over the world that just needed to be shared, I thought. So it was fun to dig those up. Was there anywhere like, uh, you know, or and then actually, let me, ask, let me ask a different question. So I think one thing that you come across with sparkling wine that is interesting to me is you have places where people are making sparkling wine where very clear, it, whether it's a, a region or even just an individual producer, where it's very clear that champagne is their model, right? They, they're planting Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Meunier, whatever. They're going for extended bottle aging. That they want to make a champ as much of a. They want to make a wine analogous to champagne where they are. And then there are everyone who's like, well, you know, <laughs> we don't have Chardonnay and Pinot Noir here. We have Muller Turgau, or we have you know Chenin Blanc, or we have pick one of a million other varieties. Let alone, we don't necessarily want to do extended bottle aging. 
um, or, or any bottle aging, you know, does it feel almost right to you to, I mean, obviously all these wines are sparkling. So, so in one sense, they're all sparkling wines. But I feel like, you know, to almost to your point about Prosecco, where people were and still are largely kind of uh, confused about what Prosecco is and how much I did a whole class on Prosecco for this very reason, because I found too that like people thought of Prosecco was only like La Marca. Um, and obviously there's a lot more to it than that. Um, with sparkling wine, does it almost, to your eyes, does it make sense to, to lump all of these kinds of wines together or should we be a little bit more um, you know, particular about how we kind of talk about these wines? Oh, um, I mean, you are correct in that I think a lot of regions started doing either, you know, let's just say for simplicity, the champagne method or the Prosecco method um, after the fact. But I, I mean, I really love to kind of appreciate each wine on its own terms. And, you know, with both the Rosé book and the Sparkling book, I did a fair amount of research and found that there these these styles of wine have very, very long histories. In fact, I would argue that Rosé was the first style of wine ever made. Mm-hmm. Um, and with Sparkling wine, you know, there are documents from ancient Rome about like, you know, uh, amphorae exploding because they were going through their second fermentation. You know, so we know that sparkling wine has been around forever and it has not always taken this form that we sort of, I, I, there's, I just, it's, it's just so interesting that we, we all have this idea that wine is clear white, dark red, you know, clear sparkling, and it's, this is the way it's always been, but it's really only been like that since like 1950. <laughs> and there were all sorts of funky wines out there before then. And um, Patrick McGovern, the great um, archeologist and anthropologist who's done all the wonderful research and written all the books about ancient viticulture and ancient winemaking, he talks about how, you know, he, he believes, you know, our Paleolithic ancestors figured out sparkling wine and, and just got a huge, must have gotten a huge thrill out of those bubbles. Like, wow, what is this? This is so exciting. Um, so he thinks sparkling wine has been around forever. Um, he's even recreated sparkling wines from a gazillion years ago. Um, so yeah, I think we I think we need to throw away this platonic idea ideal of champagne um, and and just sort of open our minds to the idea that sparkling wine can take a lot of different guises. It can be a lot of different colors. It can come from anywhere. It can be made from any grape. And in fact, you know, if you, once you start getting really geeky about it, sparkling wine or méthode traditionnelle, you know, champagne method actually wasn't originated in Champagne. You know, it it came from the south of France, and the Champagne as we know it was really created in in England. So and that's a whole story. So. Yeah. We, we kind of have these origin stories with wine and we think things are traditional and the way it should be and the way it was. And it, it really wasn't that way, you know, and the same thing with Rosé, like the finest wines in France until the French revolution were pink. They were not red. And yeah. if you want to go off on that, I'll talk for an hour, but <laughs> we have these ideas and they're just, they're just, they're just these, these um, platonic ideas that we've formed, but they're not necessarily the way things have always been. For sure. And I think you're right that, you know, no, maybe no category more than sparkling wine and champagne has been sort of uh, fused with mythology about how it came to be. And, 
you know, what it is, what it should be and, and how it represents. And I, and I think, you know, I, I think what's really cool about it, as you said, is that we are seeing both a little more embrace of very traditional esoteric styles of sparkling wine in their countries of origin, but also a lot of people in the U.S. who are experimenting with all kinds of different sparkling wine. And I'm wondering, you know, not to put you totally on the spot, but um, if there are some producers in the U.S. who you have, whose wines you've tried, wh whether they're making, you know, traditional method, uh, tank method, pet mat, whatever, you know, whatever you feel like that are making sparkling wine that you think is really interesting. Hmm. Um, and open to all of you if you have thoughts too, obviously, if you have uh, favorite producers. Yeah. Um, gosh. I, I just, I, what I love is kind of the, the young um, winemakers who are playing around with pet gnats and, and, and I, mean, I don't, do your attendees know what a pet gnat is? I don't have you already. Some of them definitely do, but we can, we can explain real quick. Um, basically, instead of a secondary fermentation happening in bottle where the wine is, a still wine is made and then bottled and, uh, and sealed with, uh, you know, a, a sugar and yeast to re-ferment, the bottle is, with a pet gnat, the bottle is just sealed during the first fermentation so that it can, the, the fermentation finishes in bottle. So there's, there's sort of, can range in their effervescence and usually have sediment in them and, and have a little more, I mean, I think you'd say, you probably tasted more than I have, Catherine, but generally a little kind of hybrid sort of assertive fruitiness and also kind of yeasty, like in a very like visceral way, like not in a kind of like, they're more like, they smell more like bread and less like, you know, Parmesan cheese. And definitely a, a, a drinking vinegar. If you're into drinking vinegars, there's a little bit of that. Mm. Um, and some of them are funkier, funkier than others. But I mean, I, I love seeing what kind of the young winemakers are doing with pet nets. Um, gosh, I to name specific names. I mean, I'm trying this landmass right now, but there are so many in Oregon, um, California, and Washington. I don't want to. I don't want to call out favorites. Um, but and the other thing that's interesting is in Oregon. I don't know what's going on in Washington, but um, we have a, a facility in McMinnville called Radiant Sparkling, which has completely changed the Oregon landscape. And of course, we already make Pinot and, and Chardonnay and Pinot Meunier here. We already have those grapes, so it, it was kind of a obvious transition to sparkling. But um, making sparkling wine is really, it takes a lot of resources. It takes a lot of space because you got to you got to store those bottles on the lees for years um, and a lot of machinery and legwork and it's a huge pain. So we now have these um, these winemakers like Radiant Sparkling um, in McMinnville where you know you go there you say okay I'm gonna pick my fruit early can you turn it into sparkling wine and they just do it all for you. I mean you do it with them but um, this is kind of opening the door to sparkling wine all up and down the West Coast. The fact that there are these facilities that are just focusing it's on like this. A, so it's like a sparkling only custom crush facility, basically? basically? Yeah. Cool. But the wines are very, dis it's not that they're not their own wines, you know, they, they're very distinctive. They're their own fruit. They're, they make all the winemaking decisions, you know, the, the liqueur de tirage might be made of their own grapes or whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of opening doors where almost, I want to say almost every winery in the Willamette Valley is now making sparkling wine and a lot of them are really good. 
That's really cool. Yeah, because I mean, I think that's, I mean, you, you hit on a huge piece of this with sparkling, which is really true, which is, whereas like rosé has kind of had the, uh, the reason why rosé production grew so much in the U.S. in particular and everywhere is like rosé was easy for people. It was usually, I mean, we can talk a little more about some specifics, but especially if you're talking about a Sonnier rosé, you're talking about something that might, the winery might have been doing on their own anyhow and then dumping. And instead they can, you know, ferment it, bottle it, sell it, which is obviously a big win for wineries. Um, and even if you're making an intentional rosé, it doesn't require any additional, if you're making white wine, you, you can make rosé with the same equipment. Sparkling wine, you're right. Most most types of sparkling wine require specialized equipment. And that's why you, know, you mentioned, you asked about Washington, you know, here, I, you know, I'll be curious um, if anyone has any uh, additional insight, but I think one of the things with Washington that's true is there's even less, until very recently, there have been fewer and uh, less production dedicated to it, both because obviously Washington doesn't have, especially Pinot Noir, obviously there's lots of Chardonnay planted here, but doesn't have this sort of as many kind of established growing areas that are really well suited for, for sparkling wine grapes. Um, that's changing. Um, and obviously part of it is people have, you know, if you're planting for sparkling wine, there's lots of places in Washington that you can get, you know, yeah. you can gain acidity. It's just sparkling wine for a lot of producers was thought of as a, either a, you know, something we'll do on the side or, or as you know, you kind of point out just too time consuming, labor consuming, capital intensive, all that space intensive. Um, and so I don't think there's, I don't know if there's anything like analogous to radiant sparkling here in Washington. I, I would be surprised. There are obviously some producers that are either wholly dedicated to sparkling wine or largely dedicated to sparkling wine here. But what, what you've seen a lot of, uh, or I've seen a lot of to come back to this point is a lot more people making Petnat because Petnat isn't, at least in terms of equipment as intensive um, and usually isn't as time intensive. And there's some really interesting ones coming out of Washington too, as the case is I'm sure in Oregon and, and to some extent California. And the advantage here, I think in some cases, at least as compared to the Willamette Valley is um, you have a much broader sort of suite of grapes to work with. Whereas, you know, in the Willamette, you're really kind of working with, you know, a you know, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris. Obviously there's some Riesling, you know, other things, but, but, Oregon or the Willamette is much more dedicated to a couple of core varieties. Obviously Washington has lots of Cabernet Sauvignon, but, but there's also a lot of other random shit planted here, which is good for sparkling wine because sparkling wine kind of thrives with like the random shit that people throw in a, in a blend more than, you know, certain other kinds of wine styles. So um, I'm, I'm glad you got to that, to that at the end of what you're saying, because earlier when you were saying, we don't make Pinot Noir, we don't grow Pinot Noir and Chardonnay in Washington, so we can't make traditional method sparkling. I was gonna say, oh, oh, wait a minute here, Absolutely. because go to Italy, they're making sparkling wine out of everything. Go to Australia, they have dark red sparkling Shiraz, traditional method, and maybe it's not my cup of tea, but people love it. And it's a, it's a dark red sparkling wine, so you you can make sparkling out of anything. I mean, oh, sure. whether it's to your taste or not is another question. Um, yeah. So Donna, you mentioned Grow Grain, and I think that's a great example of a producer that makes a few different. I think they make a couple of different. Uh, they make a Chenin Blanc Petnat as well, if I recall correctly. I um, just bought a six pack of their rosé, and I haven't tasted it yet. I just bought it because I heard it was great. So I'm super excited yeah. about Grow Grain. Yay. Yeah. And they're really dedicated to not exclusively pet nap, but to kind of, you know, 
again, you know, some of the esoteric varieties in Washington, um, for sure. And I mean, obviously, that's a thing that's happening in, in both states and, and in, you know, to some extent, all over the, the country where, you know, you have this sort of whatever wave of winery we're on now, where, you know, they're sort of like, we're not even going to make, you know, here in Washington, they're like, we don't make Cabernet, we don't make Chardonnay, we make Chenin Blanc, Lemberger, you know, uh, Cinso, like, we're just going to, you know, because for one, this is a little bit of field from specifically sparkling or rosé, which is totally fine. For one, I think with a lot of them, if they don't have a vineyard, the fruit you can afford. Sorry, I was pouring wine. Keep talking. <laughs> the, 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 uh, if you don't have a vineyard, the, uh, the, the grapes you can afford, if you're a new winery starting out and you don't have a lot of capital, are going to be the oddball varieties that someone has been growing for a while and doesn't have a home for in a given year or you know, whatever, you know, blending varieties that maybe they got a bigger crop of than they were expecting. Those kinds of things give younger or at least newer winemakers an entry point if they don't have a vineyard. And, and obviously, you know, for a newer winery, you know, planting a vineyard or buying an existing vineyard is really expensive. I mean, certainly if you plant it, um, you not only have the cost of actually do, of acquiring the land and planting the vineyard, but you also have to wait, you know, a few years at least before you're getting any usable fruit. And, um, and I, and I think, you know, I, I was curious are you seeing that um, the, you know, is that, are, are, is this sort of young energy in, in, the, in Oregon in the Willamette or is it in other parts of Oregon? Um, well, it's kind of like you said, it's wherever they can get fruit because you know, it used to be land was affordable and now it's not. So people are just buying fruit, whether it's from the Gorge or the Willamette Valley um, or Southern Oregon. And that's kind of what I love about our young urban winemakers are just kind of sourcing fruit wherever they can get it and doing what they can with it. Um, and to get back to Petnat, um, it's the, the other term for it is méthode ancestrale. So it's like the ancestral method of making sparkling wine. This is the way people's grandparents used to make sparkling wine. And it's really fun to see how these young winemakers are being creative with what, you know, like you're saying, Zach, the, 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 the grapes they can afford, the grapes they can get access to. And I think they're doing really interesting things. And, you know, I feel like this is so true with any sort of creativity. You know, we, we talk about like how, you know, the best art and poetry and music comes out of war and hard times or whatever. So it's, I almost feel like, the more you constrain someone, the more interesting the solutions they come up with are. Um, I always think about like, we all love mid-century modern furniture and it's made out of this bent plywood because during World War II, that was all that furniture designers could get their hands on was plywood. So they started bending it and making these beautiful shapes and now we're paying so much money for this bent plywood furniture. So it's really fun right now to see young winemakers who they've been priced out the, the price of land has just gone through the roof they can't afford to make traditional method sparkling because it requires a bunch of expensive equipment you have to bottle age it for years they don't have you know they don't have a place to store it they don't have the funds for that so what can they do with just one bottle just a ferment i left the crown cap on here what can they do with a just one fermentation in the bottle how can they be creative with that? And it's it's just so much fun. And each producer you open, it's like a completely different experience. Um, unlike, you know, Zach and I were talking before we started about the 
the wonderful California um, sparkling wine houses that are owned by French. I went, I went the other direction. Yeah. So Tetanjay owns Domaine Carneros and it's, you go down there, it is like, it's basically a castle. It's a chateau that they've, you know, rebuilt to look like their chateau in Champagne. And the wines are amazing, but it's just sort of like cookie cutter, you know, you know what you're going to get. And I love this, this just, you know, buying a, a young local winemaker's pet net and you just don't know what you're going to get. And it might be horrible, <laughs> but I just love that the sense of discovery and creativity and it's just exciting. It's an exciting time. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, and I think it's, you know, I kind of, uh, am, am glad you brought up this sort of, uh, spectrum of everything in sparkling wine from style to scale, I guess you could say, or whatever. Um, but I'm also curious, um, you know, we, we've talked a lot about, about sparkling wines and, and pet nine in particular. And I was going to say a thing that maybe almost goes without saying in this conversation, you all are probably well aware of this, but another thing that makes uh, sparkling wine and, and maybe even specifically certain pet nats really exciting is, is how um, incredibly versatile they are as a pairing tool with food. And I think about Portland as a city with, I mean, an incredibly vital food scene and a food scene where, um, you know, you can correct me how, if I'm wrong on this, Catherine, because I just visit, I don't live there, but where, where there's a lot of great restaurants that are really focused on like, you know, interesting, bold, different flavors that aren't always super wine friendly. I mean, they're obviously restaurants, they're great restaurants in Portland that are, you know, classic cuisines, Italian, French, whatever. But there's a lot of like weird shit and the weird shit is hard for wine sometimes, at least classic paradigms of wine. So is part of the kind of excitement also just that like this gives, you know, people who like to drink wine with their food, another kind of option when they're, when they're looking at some of the restaurants and the cuisines that are just not traditionally easy to pair with kind of classic styles? Well, yes and no. I mean, I would say Pet Nat is the beer of wines. So whenever you want to grab a beer, you grab a Pet Nat. It's refreshing. It's light. Just guzzle it. It's usually fairly low, low in alcohol. Um, that said, if you're ordering some food, I say order because none of us go out anymore. Um, that's something that's going to be extremely spicy. There's going to be a lot of heat. I would not drink Pet Nat. I would not drink a drinking vinegar, even though that's traditionally often what would be drunk. I have a very sensitive palate. So I would want something that has more sugar and more alcohol to coat my palate. So it actually kind of depends on where you're coming from. If you're someone who loves massive chili peppers, then go for the Pet Nat. I personally would not do that. But yeah, like tacos, you want beer? You get a pet nap. Hold on, my dog is scratching my door, and if I let him scratch, of course. My, mine finally gave up on causing a scene and has settled onto the couch to sleep. Um, okay, I'm still doing this. Folks, if you have questions or comments, or whatever, please feel free to jump in. My but kid, I, kid, grabbed my dog, so they're not well, scratching right. anymore. Mine can't do that yet. Well, he can grab him, but then we yell at him because he's not supposed to grab. Him. <laughs> uh, I was going to ask. I wanted to sort of change. Here's a little bit, obviously, if you guys have comments or questions, please feel free to jump in. But um, Catherine also uh, is the host of a podcast that I really enjoy called The Four Top, uh, which is uh, sort of in this, I guess you could say, slightly transitional phase um, 
but I wanted to I wanted to sort of ask you since you and I are not only sort of uh, colleagues in terms of writing about wine, but also podcasting about you know, beverage alcohol in some sense. I really like the Natalie McLean episode, by the way. I just listened. Oh, thank you. Yeah, Natalie. Actually, I was hoping she would join us today, but she she was going to, and then had somebody else come up. But um, she is. Uh, uh, yeah. So um, I, I'm curious. You know, what kind of how did the four top come to be? <laughs> um, do you want the long version or the short version? Uh, so somewhere in the, it doesn't have to be the short version, I guess. So, I mean, it was like 10 years ago. I was one of those geeks who was like one of a fairly early podcast person. And um, I couldn't find the podcast I wanted to listen to, um, which originally would have just been a wine podcast. Um, so I partnered with this digital audio company that was going to make gazillions making podcasts for everyone. And they went bankrupt because it was too soon. Mm -hmm. uh, no one, you know, no one knew what podcasts were. So then I had to kind of widen my scope um, because the next entity I approached was my employer at the time, the Oregonian newspaper. And we had a magazine called Mix that was food and beverage culture. So um, in order to get them interested, I had to say, well, this is going to be food and beverage. And it was so funny. I was working for a newspaper and they said, God, we love this idea. This sounds great, but we're just not investing in anything other than print right now. <laughs> this, this, this dates it, right? Yeah. And I was, like, I was like, no, I swear. I think like, I love these podcasts. I really, <laughs> I think these are going to go somewhere and you might want to look at digital. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, so they passed on it. So then I ended up with OPB in 2015 so it took like five years to get there Oregon public broadcasting for those of you public broadcasting and by then I was just pitching general food and beverage because you know wine is kind of a niche thing and even though I'm a wine journalist I thought well in order to get someone interested I'm gonna have to talk you know Portland's a huge food and beverage um, community so OPB went for it um, and so that's kind of how it came about but I was never I, you know, looking back, I've never been a food person. I've always been a wine person. I mean, I, I like food, but what I really like is that my friends are cookbook authors. So when we get together, they bring the food and I bring the wine. <laughs> That's how I like it. So um, it's been really fun since 2016. The four top, it's been, a, you know, a, a roundtable discussion about the hot button topics in food and beverage culture. I've learned so much. We talk about issues relating to sustainability, human rights, culture, um, and we try to have fun. You know, we have three guests and me. We laugh a lot, but we learn a lot. It's been great, um, but since we parted ways with OPB, which we did a couple months ago, I sort of, we're kind of reassessing right now. We're doing a best of um, season while we kind of think about what we want to do next. And I really am thinking maybe I just want to make it wine focused because that's, that's the area where I don't have to, you know, <laughs> memorize a script in advance. I can just, you know, like we're doing right now, I can just have a really fun conversation and already kind of be in it. Um, so we'll see, we'll see. We're waiting, we, we have a uh, survey out. So if you all want to listen and fill out our survey, you can win a tote bag. <laughs> I can I leave, email you all the link to it. I leave public radio and now I start giving out tote bags. So, <laughs> what, am I, what am I doing? What am I doing? Yeah, 
that is the not the typical order of things. I'm well, curious. Also, about, also, clearly, I am not like in this for the money because. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, there is a there is a narrow band of very successful podcasts, and then there's well, there's a really big group of podcasts that basically no one listens to. There's a smaller band of podcasts that a lot of people listen to but aren't that lucrative, and then there's like you know. 50 podcasts that make a lot of money or whatever. Um, like with wine journalism. <laughs> Say what? Same thing with wine journalism. Yeah, true. There's a lot of people who do it for free or very little. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I think that um, I was going to ask about, um, about something about the foretop, which is, you know, one of the things I, I did find really interesting about it was that you used a lot of times food or beverage as a lens to kind of look at broader societal issues. And it seems to me like that's still a big, um, a big piece of the, of the of what whatever the four top will become going forward. Do you see it that way too? Yeah, I mean, I think what makes the best audio is the top talking about the really tough issues. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the reason I wanted to start the four top was I couldn't find the show I wanted, which was. I didn't want to hear one more interview with a celebrity chef. I didn't want to hear one more conversation about how great this restaurant is, <clears throat> which is, I, I, you know, that's all wonderful. I love that stuff. But I want to hear the stuff that kind of, you know, digs under the surface and maybe it's a little painful. <clears throat> but if you can, sorry, I'm losing my voice. I've been on Zooms all day. Um, <coughs> pardon me. Um, I, I think what makes the best listening is when a few people are picking, you know, picking apart something that's really a little bit painful, a little bit awkward, a little bit uncomfortable, but then they find ways to laugh about it. Mm -hmm. So that was originally my idea for the four top. And I think we can, if we do move forward and focus just on wine, I think we can still do that. Because um, I don't want to listen to a podcast that's either just yay, we love Chardonnay from California. And I also don't want to listen to a podcast that's just an interview with one person that goes on and on and on and goes into way too much detail. That podcast to... exists already. Yeah, I mean, I want to hear three of my friends or three people who could be my friends um, kind of shooting the shit about something I've been curious about and sort of picking it apart. Um, so we did do that in a recent episode about the Court of Master Sommeliers, which I know you guys did a great episode on Vine Pair. We did. Well, and that's exactly yeah. the kind of stuff I think we all need to talk more about. You know. Well, and I think, I think it's definitely true that wine journalism broadly and, and podcasting too has an issue where it often falls into, I guess you would say, sort of either a valedictory mode where it's like, yay, X, right? Yay, this region, this place, this person, or it's sort of, yeah, the, you know, it's, it's a, it's an interview, but it, it doesn't really, but the interview is basically just tell me about this thing, you tell me about yourself or tell me about this thing, or, or there's a lot of, um, and some really good content out there in this vein, which is like wine basics, right? Let me teach you about the basics of wine. But one thing that we found, I mean, with Vine Pair that's really true is when we started doing the podcast, and obviously we don't just focus on wine, we, there weren't a lot of people who were talking about beverage alcohol that were, that were trying to be, con, you know, we're trying to have a conversation about it that wasn't, that didn't aim to either exclusively celebrate or 
exclusively educate. And I think, or, or you know, and I think it can be really difficult. And I, I mean, I would welcome everyone's feedback. I think we do a pretty good job of finding a, a balance most of the time where we are informative, where we need to be informative. We are interrogative when we need to interrogate something, but we're also, and hopefully a little bit entertaining. And I think that is a, a you know, there's a lot of great podcasts out there that cover a lot of other elements of people's lives in that way. But food and drink, food probably has some, definitely has some examples where, where people are doing that. But drink still kind of suffers from this, this, this reality that like a lot of the people who cover the drinks industry are cheerleaders for it. And I mean, I love, I mean, I'm happy to be that person a lot of times. I think there's a lot of great everything about drinks. I mean, I love to do it for one. I think there's a lot of great product out there and I'm not, I don't think it's, I don't think it's wrong to be excited about the, the thing. I think it's also unfortunate when people are covering a, a thing that is so pleasurable and brings so much joy to people through a totally like, you know, jaded, disaffected view. You don't want to be that either. But I do think that, you know, wine and suffered and beverage alcohol suffered from being sort of, yeah, I don't know, not, not taken seriously as a really a place where really meaningful, impactful things in culture can happen and do happen. And if we don't treat it as such, it won't, people won't, won't respond to it as such. Yeah. And, you know, there's a great opportunity there because I've always thought wine has kind of a trickle down. I don't want to say trickle down economics, that's not, but a trickle down effect in that things that become sort of hot with wine then become hot with the rest of culture. So um, I remember organic wines kind of becoming hot before organic foods did, um, you know, because it's, it's more of a luxury item. So if a luxury item is, is accepted, then people want it in the rest of their lives. Um, where was I going to go with this? Oh, um, yeah. And, and so I, I think the big issue right now is labor. Um, I think the wine industry could actually have a huge impact on the American farm labor situation because the people who are in the wine industry have money and power. So we could make change if we started really talking about it. Um, I actually, I just did a video for the Oregon Wine Board where I kind of just went off because I was <laughs> like, you guys need to look at what's right at your feet. You know, we've all been sort of, and I, when I was writing for the Oregonian, I was just like, yay, yay, Oregon wine. It's very sustainable. You know, these people are trying to save farms in Oregon, blah, blah, blah. But there's some serious problems that we need to talk about. Um, you know, and one of the problems is right in front of our faces, which is that our labor force is largely migrant. In Oregon, we really can't do machine harvesting because we have small vineyards that are on slopes um, and it just doesn't work. So we are very reliant on a undocumented labor force and we have the opportunity to make some serious change. And so the thing in this video, I, I don't know if they'll cut me out or not, but <laughs> I said, you know, I said, you know, where can we start? We can start by saying their names, like just, I know that, that, you know, there's the issue of immigration coming after people, but can you, can you name everyone you can on your vineyard crew? Can you have their pictures on your website? Can you thank them? Can you pour the, your wines for them so they can taste them? Because there's this total disconnect there. So, 
you know, is, is wine part of front page news? Yeah, it is. You know, these folks were, were harvesting during COVID, during the wildfires. They couldn't wear masks because they were sweating so much. You know, I mean, <laughs> there, there are atrocities happening like right in front of our eyes and, it, and the wine industry is part of it. And, and we could really make a lot of change. So yeah, there are all these uncomfortable, uncomfortable topics that we can talk about and we can make a difference from the wine perspective. We really can. And I think you make a good point too that, well, two of them, I suppose. One is that, you know, because wine for most, in most ways is, is still kind of a luxury good, it is better able to both command attention at, at a level where, where people are going to, some, some amount of people are going to pay attention to not just even necessarily the winemaker, but the person who runs the vineyard, the people who work in the vineyard, all that, and can usually tolerate a little more honest pricing to actually compensate people fairly. And, and obviously that's a huge issue and, and a, a, a topic that is you know, worthy of its own conversation for sure. Um, and I hope we get to have it soon. I do think that along with that comes a sort of, a sort of conversation too about, you know, and maybe it's what you mean, Catherine, that it feeds into, you know, our entire food economy and system depends on a lot of underpaid, uh, vulnerable labor, most of it migrant, much of it undocumented, that is like, you know, we, uh, we don't, we don't, um, I don't know, we don't, uh, we don't acknowledge it. And yet it's what allows, you know, the, yeah, I mean, the would, would we all be willing to pay 10 cents, 20 cents more per food or beverage item if every farm in America was required to have a shed or a barn with some place to sit down and eat your lunch in the shade where it's not hot, a shower, a bathroom. I mean, the conditions these folks are working in are deplorable. They are, it's embarrassing to the United States that we let this go on. And I think all of us would be willing to pay a few cents more. And I think the wine industry is powerful. It has money and we're in the position to make that change. We're in the position to push for that change. Um, but we have to start by leading by example. Yeah. And it's, and it's also, it's a particularly, uh, important thing because not that this is this thing I'm going to say is also true about other forms of agriculture in some in, in a variety of ways but vineyard work is such skilled labor you know it is not um you know it's very hard it's physically demanding but you know you talk to anyone who any any person who is a, a vineyard manager or vineyard owner winemaker about the incredible how much they they rely on and and, and sort of and hopefully value their experience skilled labor force because it really is the case that like you know at most levels of certainly the wine we like to drink you know you need someone who really knows what they're doing in the vineyard and that that's not just the person managing the vineyard but every person who touches a vine touches a a, a leaf touches a grape you know that's that's really skilled labor and and because wine is such a high value agricultural product, 
it's really important that that labor be compensated. And it's at the same time, you know, we, we do exist in this world where, you know, there are people out there and, and this is one of the things that's difficult about wine and, and actually, I mean, again, a whole nother talk, a, a part of this conversation that we could have. And I don't know that it's necessarily you all or the audience for that because you all are here. You know, I know you all care about quality, not just labor practices, I'm sure, but also just quality of wine. But it's one of the big issues I have with a lot of these sort of, you know, fly-by-night brands, inexpensive wines, you know, sort of, you know, labels that don't have a physical winery at all and then rely on this sort of, you know, some of it's machine harvested, fine, whatever, you know, that's, there's other issues there, but, or potential issues there, but, but a lot of it relies on this sort of, you know, gray market of, of wine that is, you know, you're never going to have any belief in my eyes, any ability to believe that anything involving, involved in that process from the agricultural practices, labor practices, anything are anything other than shady. Cause it's the only way you get a wine, wine in a bottle for $3. Like it just, it, there's no way to do it. That isn't sort of loathsome at its core. Um, and, and yet, you know, and, and I guess I, I mean, I don't know, this is just my own diatribe, whatever you all are here in my class or my salon, so deal with it. I, I find it really frustrating when people respond to me with, you know, what, I mean, I personally find it, this is just my opinion. I think that if you're going to, that it's, there is not, I do not believe that you can get a quality and a, a wine that I would feel comfortable drinking, both from a quality standpoint and a sort of moral ethical standpoint in a in any kind of wine shop grocery store whatever for less than ten dollars like the reality is what it costs to grow the amount of wine grapes you need to to make a bottle of wine something somewhere in there whether it's abusive labor practices manipulated wine incredibly high yields that are then you know manipulated as i said all this stuff you know, there just isn't a ten, an under $10 bottle of wine, as far as I'm aware, that I would stand behind and say, and this is in the US, you know, I, I think it's possible to find some stuff under that same price point in Europe where costing is different, there's subsidies, it's a little different, even then. You know, the EU is subsidizing that stuff, yeah. Yeah, so, so, but I mean, here in the United States, I don't think, I, do, I feel pretty confident in that. And, and honestly, under 15, a lot of the times, I'm still like, I'm going to have to see it to believe it. But it, it's certainly possible under $15 um, in, in places, depending on what the kind of wine is, who's making it. You know, there are certainly plenty of perfectly legitimate fine wines that come in at that price point. But um, uh, I just think that, um, I just think that, uh, you know, it's, it's incumbent on all of us to kind of think about, and again, you know, I know I'm a little bit preaching to the converted here, so I apologize for, for subjecting you to this, but it's incumbent on us to think about that, like, wine is first and foremost a, an agricultural product. And if it isn't, you know, we, I, I posted it, I tweeted this a while back, but I was saying, you know, like, I, I think it takes, it's like eight pounds of grapes to make a bottle of wine approximately. And think about what you would be willing to pay for eight pounds of grapes just that you would eat. Setting aside any of the cost that goes into a bottle, a label, a cork, a capsule, shipping it, let alone the labor that goes into making the wine. So what are you willing to pay for eight pounds of grapes that you would eat? 25 bucks, easily. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, 20 bucks maybe. I mean, I, you know, depending on, I mean, obviously I'm being a little bit glib in that like, 
table grapes are different in various ways from, from wine grapes in certain senses. But, but the point is like, that's what goes into your wine. And if you're not willing to pay, if you're not willing to sit down and eat $8, you know, if you're not willing to, to eat eight pounds of grapes that cost you $4 or $6, should you drink the wine? I, I don't think so. I mean, that's my opinion. So. I like it. Thank we'll you. Have to, we'll have to talk further about this. I, yeah. Yeah. I want to, we're at. That's not the way the U.S. economy works. Well, of course, and, and, and I understand that, and I, I'm being a little, you know, whatever, I'm being a little um, idealistic here. I've had, I've had, you know, I've had this much of the wine, so I'm in that. <laughs> Come back in a couple, another glass, I might be angrier. But um, I was going to say if anyone else had any questions or things that they wanted to ask or, or comments before we wrap things up, because I know, Catherine, you have a, a family and also a, a life that involves not being on Zoom. Well, in my my younger dog had surgery yesterday. Oh my goodness. He got fixed and he had a tooth pulled. So um, he's very high needs right now. I bet. <laughs> but he's a, I haven't heard from him. So he's, I think he's okay. Either okay or really not okay. So I guess. You know, <laughs> my my um, over here, but she seems to be hiding from him. Well, um, thank you all for being here. Catherine, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Look forward to checking the book out. Uh, and uh, and seeing what happens with the four top and um, yeah. When, and is it, when, is the, when is the publication date? March 9th. And okay. um, you, can, you can go to Sparkling Wine anytime, and you can pre-order the book. And you can also, I think I was saying earlier, Rosé all day. I didn't really get on the bandwagon, and suddenly all these like T-shirts and mugs and whatever. So I'm getting on top of it this time. <laughs> so you can buy a Sparkling Wine anytime tote bag from Recycled Cotton from my website. And we're gonna have t-shirts, we're gonna have beach towels, and I think cocktail napkins. And that's about as far as I can go. I'm really not a retail person, but I just, it, it, no, was, very, uh, it was very- sparkling wine any, No sparkling wine anytime shambongs? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Do I need one of these? Is this-, is I, this feel, I feel like it's, I, I mean, I, Christina's over here nodding. So I think, I feel like she's on board. Okay. It's, uh, You'd have an audience for them. It might be a small audience, but they would. There'd be people who'd be. In there. <laughs> Can you get them custom printed? Is it a that's beer for you to investigate? I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm also a sort of a. I have a sort of sparkling wine brand here, so maybe I should be uh, be looking into it. But uh, okay. have you 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 have you have experienced the Chambon? I assume. No. Can you oh, be really? my brand ambassador? I, oh, no. I feel like I've always been like I I am the person who misses all the parties because I'm always like oh I got it I've got I'm a single mom with two kids and like I'm goodbye I can't stay for the after party like I'm not I, mean, I am now I'm not a single dad but I am a dad and that, that has become me like this year has been very I have not had to say no to a lot of things which is kind of nice because uh, none of the things have happened but it's definitely like it was I mean I was a little bit that kind of person before but it definitely was like um, I'm gonna go to bed yeah. Um, but uh, the Shambong I have, it's, it's, you gotta be in the right state of mind or the wrong state of mind, I don't know how you think about it, but it's definitely, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a fun thing from time to time. I mean, I'm not like a, I'm not a big fan of things that encourage sort of just like mindless drinking, but I've definitely like shotgunned a few beers in my thirties, so I can't really be critical of I feel like I'm too old for the Shambong. Like I'm 47. Not. I'm like getting close to 50. But well, I have I have seen people with a couple decades on you enjoy the Shambong. It's okay. it's a it's fun. Okay, well I am so grateful to you, Zach. 
I didn't even know this existed. So. Okay. I feel so much cooler now. <laughs> right. You just fall down. <laughs>